0: Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We are going to finish Matthew chapter 10 this morning, and then next week, uh, Cody will begin a four-week series uh, focusing on Advent, focusing on uh, the coming of Jesus into the world, and we're excited about that. But uh, to start out this morning, before we read our text, I want to tell you a brief story uh, about uh, a time when I went to Thailand I want to show you a picture up here. The first time that I went to Thailand was in 2007. (laughs) Now, that picture says a lot. Okay, that that's like my mindset most days in ministry. You know, I just I kind of think I don't really know how we're going to get through this. But on this particular trip, I, (laughs) I had been assigned to do the soundboard and the projection and all these sorts of things. In, in a foreign country, no less, where the plugs are different and all these kind of things are just messing with your brain, would you care to guess how many times I had ever even looked at a soundboard before in my life? Zero. <laughs> and so God stretches you in unique ways. Well, that year, that was 2007. Well, through that trip, I, I just gained a love for the country of Thailand. And so in 2008, I decided that I wanted to go back to Thailand. A team from our church was going to do ministry in Hong Kong. I was a part of that team, and the team left to go back to the U.S., and uh, I stayed behind, and I flew to Thailand for a week, and I worked with a man named Mark Blandford. Mark Blandford works for a, an organization in Thailand called Christian Prison Ministry Foundation. Just a little background about the country of Thailand. I hope that you'll see in just a moment how this is so uh, relevant to our text today. Thailand is a Buddhist country, overwhelmingly. Uh, upwards of 98, 99% of the people in Thailand are Buddhist, at least culturally, so whether or not they practice Uh, you know, we can't know. But Thailand is an open country, and that means that even though it's a majority non-Christian country, uh, you can preach the gospel there. You can do ministry there. You can proclaim Christ without fear of reprisal or government intervention or anything like that. And in fact, God had granted such favor to the Christian Prison Ministry Foundation to work in the prisons because they saw that men and women who came through that program didn't come back to jail. They didn't come back. They left the jail. They didn't come back. And any of you who have ever worked in prison ministry or known anything about uh, prison cycles know that that's unfortunately not the norm. That The recidivism rate is is quite high for men and women leaving prison and eventually coming back. And and, uh, uh, just to illustrate that favor, we were driving one morning to Uh, the facility, and Bangkok is a massive city, and the driving, if you've ever been in a country like that, is just enough to enhance your prayer life, moment by moment, and so we, we made some kind of illegal maneuver of some sort, and and the policeman pulled us over, and the missionary I was working with, he spoke Thai, and so I'm just sitting there, I'm by myself, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, you know, uh, you're in charge of this deal, and he, they're talking back in Thai, and so forth, and so on, and next thing I know, we're being ushered, ushered away, He, he says, go, go away, I thought, well, that's quite odd, I asked the missionary, I said, what, what happened there? He said, well, the policeman saw the sticker on the back of my car and he recognized the Christian Prison Ministry Foundation and the work that we do in the prisons. It was just a remarkable illustration of how God gave such favor uh, to that man and to that group. I want you to hold that story in your mind about Thai prisoners coming to Christ and then what happens to them afterwards. I want you to keep that thought. As we go throughout the message this morning. And we'll, we'll answer that thought when we come to a close. Let's read today's text. Please stand as we often do in honor of the reading of the word of God. <clears throat> We're in Matthew chapter 10. Beginning in verse 34. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. But A sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that Christ lives. We thank you that he lived on earth, that he died, that he was resurrected, and he now sits at your right hand to intercede for us. To care for us in our weakness, to go before us in our struggles. And Father, even to help us through the Spirit, to deal with these hard words that you have given us today. I pray that you would help us to be open to what you would have to say to us. I pray that your Spirit would be evident among the people of God of, in Iron City, uh, both this morning and then wherever it is that you send us this week. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, with me, look, look into uh, chapter 11 verse 1, just to establish a little bit of context. You know, we've uh, we're going through the book of Matthew, and you'll have to re- forgive me for not remembering when you started this, but it's been a while ago, yes. And so what, what Cody has decided to do is, rather than spending you know three years every single Sunday in one particular book, the book of Matthew, we would do sections of it, and then we would do other uh, different emphasis Sundays or different books of the Bible. You might remember we did an Esther series a few months ago. Last week we had our family equipping Summit, and so Cody preached from Genesis 22 uh, about the nature of uh, Isaac, and his relationship to Abraham, and so today we're finishing out uh, this section of Matthew. And we'll pick it back up uh, later on next year. But what I want us to see here is that you and I have been eavesdropping on a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. You might recall that we spoke in that in that way on the Sermon on the Mount, right? That that, that we often think that Jesus was before you know, thousands of people delivering a a remarkable sermon, and and certainly there might have been large crowds eavesdropping on what he was saying, but the text is clear that he was speaking to his disciples. And so you and I, as modern-day disciples of Jesus, as followers of his, we get to eavesdrop in on the conversations that he had with his first disciples. And there's tremendous, tremendous insight there. So he, he says this in verse 11, Uh, Chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, that's fundamentally important for us because what was given to the 12, although they had unique roles, they would do unique things in the kingdom of God, particularly in the early church, what is given to them has implications for our lives today, 2,000 years later. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, if we claim to be his disciples... This has implications for us. Real world, every day, right now, implications for us. And so this morning I've titled our message A Different Gospel, A Different Gospel. And you astute Bible readers might be thinking, now Paul had something harsh to say in Galatians about those who preached a different gospel. But I hope to illustrate to you that this morning when we see a picture of the gospel and the cost of following Jesus, that it's different than what many of us perhaps have perceived. It's different. Then perhaps even many of us portray to a lost and dying world. So let's get right into the text this morning. Jesus says in verse thirty-four, "Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." Now right away, there again, I hope that you uh, know your Bibles. I hope that you're familiar with what the scriptures say. You might be thinking of a couple of references that are quite. Um, timely for us, we're about to enter into the season of Advent, as I mentioned a few moments ago. And you know the famous verse Isaiah nine six that gives uh, various titles to Jesus, and one of those is the Prince of Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and yet out of His own mouth, He says, "No, just kidding." I, I joke with the teenagers all the time. I'm, I'm about six years behind on the lingo. And uh, they don't keep me up to date, so I say J.K. a lot, and apparently that's when me and you were teenagers. So but Jesus just says, J.K., I, 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 didn't, I didn't come to bring peace. You know, you, you're confused about this. So what are we supposed to do with this, this seeming contradiction? What, what are we supposed to do with the fact that Isaiah prophesies the person of Jesus will bring peace, and then the person of Jesus himself says, no, I didn't come to bring peace. Well, I think what might be helpful to us is a couple of verses in Luke. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 2, again, uh, relevant for us because of the Advent season, we see uh, the coming of Jesus, and we see uh, a title given to him, or rather something spoken about him by the angels. In verse 14, the angels said this, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, watch this, among those with whom he is pleased. Some of your Bibles might say, uh, peace rests on them whom he favors. That's important. Because Jesus did not come to bring peace into the world in a general sense. Jesus did not come to bring peace into the world, meaning a cessation of warfare and disputes among family members and all of those kinds of things. Make no mistake, there is coming a day when that will be the case. But in his first coming, in his first advent, that was not the case. He came to bring division, as we're going to see in just a moment. So yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he's only bringing peace. That kind of peace that the Old Testament talks about in the word shalom. This inner peace that you know that you are in a right standing with the creator of the universe. That kind of peace. And Luke says here, He's bringing that peace to who? To people with whom he is pleased. With whom is God pleased? With his children. How do we become children of God? By receiving Christ, by trusting in him. Then and only then do we receive that shalom, that peace that he promises our souls. And so Jesus here is not contradicting Isaiah, Jesus here is not confused about his role. Jesus is not doing something contrary to the will of God. In fact, no, he is doing exactly what he came to do. So he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Another way to read that, uh, but a sword, is division. I have not come to bring peace, but division. Verse 35, he illustrates this in a very poignant way. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I read that, I thought, Is Jesus like explaining why sometimes so often um, moms, mother-in-laws, and daughter-in-laws don't get along? I mean, I don't know if that's the case for any of you. Thankfully, it's not in my house. My wife gets along quite well with my mother. But I've heard stories about these kind of issues. No, Jesus is not explaining (laughs) why mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws don't get along in our contemporary setting. What he is saying is that allegiance to him is going to lead to division everywhere else. That allegiance to Jesus is going to lead to division everywhere else, including the closest and most intimate relationships that you and I can imagine here on earth. There are no closer relationships than those of family. You know that in the joys, and you know that in the pains. And Jesus is simply saying, hey, I'm flipping this whole thing upside down. This is going to be different than what you think it is this is going to turn out differently than your preconceived notions this is this is going to be different than coming to me having all of your needs met all will go well with you all of your relationships will be stable jesus says don't count on that because he came to bring division he came not to bring peace but a sword. He's alluding there to, uh, this was helpful to me, a, again, a, a good study Bible I would just so commend to you. That um, will tell you things like this reference comes from Micah 7 verse 6. And Micah, as did a lot of the uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament, spoke a lot of the coming of the Messiah. Spoke a lot about the day when God would send his deliverer to his people. Jesus is quoting. verse where Micah says the exact same thing, that in that day, in the messianic age, when the Messiah comes, families will be divided. Mothers and daughters and sons and fathers and in-laws will be at odds with one another, not over the petty things of life, but over the identity of the Messiah. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. I wonder how many of you seeking to follow Jesus, seeking to be obedient to Him, have experienced division in your family, have experienced hostility, have experienced heartbreak, perhaps even have experienced disfellowship. Can I encourage you with something? Jesus knows what that's like. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. That he knows the issues that you and I deal with. Turn with me, we try to do this each week, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I was talking with uh, Cody this week and one of the things that you read more and more about the life of Jesus and we found this fascinating that Jesus never, not one time, gives us a command or an instruction or a teaching like this that he is not affected by. Be considered that. All of us in here have worked for supervisors who all they did was bark orders. All they did was say, it must be done this way, at this time, in this manner, and you're going to like it. Meanwhile, they sit there with their feet propped up on their desk and they do nothing. We don't like to work for those kind of people. We hate it. Who do we want to work for? We want to work for people who say, let me come alongside you and do this with you. Let me show you how to do this. Let me tell you about the time that I was in your shoes. Let me me tell you about the time that I was just making copies and bringing coffee to the boss. Let me just tell you about the time that I was working in the trenches doing landscaping and spreading mulch and weed eating to to care for my family. Let Let me tell you about the time that I was there. I know what it's like. Friends, that is the kind of supervisor that you and I have in Jesus. He knows what it's like. We see that here in Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 21 and skip down a few verses. <clears throat> and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They're talking about Jesus. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. His family. His brothers, his sisters, his mother was with them, as we'll see in just a moment, but I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that she did not think Jesus was out of his mind. She knew how special he was, but the brothers didn't. Many of them did not believe until well after the resurrection. Jesus is being accused by his family of being out of his mind. Have you ever? Oh, maybe not to your face. But when you go to Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday, will there there be tension? Will there be unease? Jesus knows what what that's like. He knows. Let's pick up in verse 31. And his mother and all his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, they're seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines family relationships. Jesus says, No, 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 no. In the family of God... Water is thicker than blood. Water is thicker than blood. Those who have been baptized into the family of God, those who in the public um, public commitment of baptism are marking themselves as members of God's household, that bond is thicker than the bond of blood. So take comfort in that. If you find yourself being described like the scene here, take comfort that Jesus has not left you alone, that he has placed you in a church family for that very reason. I hope you see there that Jesus is not unsympathetic to us. Jesus knows what it's like to be alienated from his family. He knows what it's like for division to exist. He knows what the tension is like at the Passover table or at the Thanksgiving table for us. He knows what that's like. So take comfort in that. Let's pick back up here. Verse 36, he goes on to explain what we've been saying. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Let's stop right there. What I want us to see in this vision of a different gospel than perhaps we are comfortable with is that Jesus has a different mission than perhaps we thought he did. He came to bring division, not peace. And that mission comes with a different cost. It comes with a different cost. Jesus warned once in a parable not uh, to build a tower Without counting the cost, those of you who are are builders, who who build things, uh, pastors who are building houses, how about that cost? You've been counting it? Yeah. We do, right? Smart people do that, all right? We count the cost. But I'm convinced that we do not do that in our discipleship, in our coming after Jesus. I'm convinced that for too long we have soft-pedaled the gospel to people. We have said, if you will just come to Jesus, all will go well with you. Even knowing in our hearts that that has not been the case for us. Even knowing that there's division in our family, perhaps, because of Jesus. Even knowing that it has cost us a job. Even knowing that we have not ascended the corporate ladder as fast as we might like because we have principles and integrity and others perhaps don't. We know that it comes with a cost. But we're afraid to tell people. We're afraid to look somebody in the eye and say, If you... Come to Jesus, your life might not get better temporarily. It might get worse. I think Cody has said this before, but Jesus would have made an awful church growth consultant. I mean, you know, you bring him in, have your meeting, and all this, and you just think, this is the Son of God. He's going to have some brilliant ideas for us. He's going to bring the crowds and He says, ah, tell them that their family's going to hate them and that um, uh, they're they're going to be division in their family. Oh, and Tell them to take up a cross while you're at it. See see how well that goes. It doesn't sell. It's not comfortable. It's a different cost than we are accustomed to. But the great thing about Jesus is he doesn't hide it from us. He, He doesn't hide it from us. He is so honest and straightforward with us. You know why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And love... Tells the hard truths. Love says, if you walk down this road, it will be difficult. If you make this commitment, there will be trouble. But even more profound than that, love says, I'm going to go with you. When we get to the end of Matthew in 2019, we're going to read that in Matthew 28 when he says i am with you until the end of the age and he means it so we don't go this thing alone we we don't do this thing in isolation we do it with the spirit of god and with the son of god and we do it with the people of god so take comfort in that this different mission has a different cost And he says it so plainly, if if, if we are not willing to rightly orient these priorities, then we're not worthy to follow Jesus. Matthew actually says it a lot softer than the parallel account, I believe it is, in Luke where where Jesus says, if you don't hate your family, then you can't follow me. Now, that made a lot more sense in that day than it does for us because we, we have a different meaning of the word hate. When Jesus used it, it was just an idiom of the day to say, no, 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 let me tell you where your priorities ought to be. They ought to be in such a way that it looks like to the outside world that, (laughs) gosh, you must hate those people because your your allegiance is to another. But the message is the same. That if, if we aren't willing to do this, to pay this cost, then we can't follow Jesus. Friends, that is a startling and stark reminder we would do well to to heed it. it says this in verse 38 whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me you know if you if you've been with us in this flow of Matthew you know that up until this point Jesus hasn't really talked a great deal about his death that that will come a lot later in Matthew's gospel and he'll talk a lot about it and there'll be all of these predictive um, statements and all of these these uh, foreshadowing elements of, of looking forward to the crucifixion. And so in, in view right here is not even necessarily him saying, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. That's not really the point that he's making. The point that he's making is to all of those disciples around him and to the crowds who might be looking in, he's saying, hey, you know the Romans have a reputation for crucifixion. You know they have perfected it. You know that if you breathe a wrong word against the emperor that you're going to be hung on that tree. You know that. And you also know that the Roman government has the right to make you carry your own cross to be hung on. Talk about insult to injury. You have to carry it. And we know it's a hard burden because Jesus couldn't do it. Simon of Cyrene had to help him carry his cross to Golgotha. Jesus is just drawing a cultural reference there. Now, no doubt the implication there, is that you ought to be willing to lose your life for my sake. We can say that because verse 39 says that. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus just simply says, friends, to, to these men, remember, church tradition and church history tells us that most of these men did lose their lives for the gospel. That most of them paid the ultimate price. And even John, who lived to old age, lived in exile on Patmos for years and years and years. Jesus is saying, guys, this is coming. But he's saying it to us too. Even if Jesus never calls any of us in this room to die a martyr's death, to die like Stephen did, proclaiming to the Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus is the Messiah, even if none of us have to pay that price, we are going to lose our life. We, we are perhaps going to lose our status. We are going to lose our prestige. We, we are going to lose family members. We are going to lose cultural approval. We're going to lose. Following Jesus is a losing proposition by the world's standards. It's a losing proposition. We have to come to terms with that. We have to count the cost. And that cost is a cross. Bearing a cross for the sake of Jesus. You know, I find this is particularly relevant. We have allowed uh, radical Islam to hijack the word martyr. You know, you, you hear on the news, uh, these people are martyred for their faith. No, they're not. Those people are murderers who paid the appropriate price for doing murder. A martyr in the truest sense of the word, is a witness to the truth of the gospel. So friends, we need to reclaim that word. Martyr is a Christian term. Not for people who go and blow themselves up to be guaranteed eternity, but people who are willing to be blowed up for the sake of eternity. Particularly the sake of others' eternity. As we'll see in just a moment. So when Jesus says... To find your life is to lose it. To lose your life for his sake is to find it. I think we all know what that means. I think we can, all, we can trust the Holy Spirit to apply that in each of our lives, to know what is it that God is calling me to lose? What is it, what is the prospect of, of me losing in this life to follow Jesus? What is it? Only you can answer that. But are you willing to ask the question? And are you willing to pay the price? That Jesus says, what well, we demanded of his followers. You know, I think about uh, in, this, in this family situation, before we move on from it. We, we were just in Mexico a few weeks ago, and um, if you were here that Wednesday night, and we shared some of the stories, and um, Catholicism there is very culturally entrenched and has a stranglehold on the people uh, in ways that, unless you've been to a Latin American country, you, you, you perhaps would not understand until you looked it in the face. And there was a 13-year-old girl there, part of the church that we were working with in a neighboring town. I think Gabriella, perhaps Aaron, help me. Uh, I think her name was Gabriella or Gabrielle. And uh, she had lived in the States for a while. And she was helping us, because she lived in the States, she knew English very, very well. So she was helping us translate in the the community that we were working in there. And I just asked her, asking her questions about her family. And she says, well, yeah some of my family still lives in the states and uh, I said, "Oh, would well, you get to see them?" And just as cu- just as straightforward as she could say, "No, they hate me." You know, teenagers have a flair for the dramatic. I mean, can we just She was not being dramatic. She wasn't looking for attention. She wasn't singing a woe is me song. She just matter-of-fact looked at me and said, "No, they hate me." division that's her cross a 13 year old girl hated in her own words hated by her family why because she trusts in jesus and she follows him it's just a remarkable illustration of this truth gabriella has identified the cost and so far as we can tell, she is willing to pay it. So we would do well to follow her example. Let's move into the second section of of this as we close chapter ten. This is these these verses here are kind of a a capstone or kind of a um, not a summary, but, but but kind of hey guys, this is where all this is leading. I have been teaching you all these things and. I have been warning you, and I have been telling you up front about the cost, and I have been very honest with you about how difficult following me is going to be. To what end? To what end? Well, he tells them whoever receives me, and whoever, excuse me, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. You might recall earlier in chapter 10, Jesus gave them instructions for when they went out. He's echoing back to that, right? He says, if you go into a house and they receive you, stay there. If they don't, dust off your feet and go away. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Remember Jesus pointing back to the fact that he is sent by the Father to accomplish a particular mission. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so what Jesus is doing here is something quite remarkable. Jesus has been saying heavy things, difficult things, difficult sayings, startling to us and no doubt to them. But do you see what he's doing? He's ending on a positive note. He is saying that if you do what I say, people are going to believe. People are going to receive you. Now, let's give a little clarity here. This does not mean that if you have a pagan neighbor and they invite you into your house and they give you something to drink and they're hospitable towards you, that God is going to save them. That's not what this means. The implication here is deeper than that. That word receive is all-encompassing. And so what Jesus is saying is, you go into a house, you go into the life of a person, and they receive you, as in hear what you have to say and believe it. They will not lose their reward. The reward he's speaking of is salvation. Not a trinket, not an extra gold star in your crown, but the reward of eternal life. You know, I think about when we were again in Mexico a few weeks ago and we were invited into a man named Jose's house. Jose is a wealthy man and uh, he was ex military, so he's very well respected in the community. We visited there twice, and the first time we visited, we were all sitting around. All of a sudden, uh, his wife or one of his children or somebody comes out with a tray uh, full of glasses of lemonade. Now, quiz for you intelligent people, what is the main ingredient in lemonade? Not lemons, water. You've heard the expression, don't drink the water in Mexico, have you not? That's a true expression, so don't do it. But then you think, well, I'm a Christian, daggummit, and I'm not going to refuse hospitality. But then you think, I'm a sensible human being, and I don't want to get dysentery and be sick for the next three weeks of my life. What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what Leighton Bussy did. He just drank the darn thing up right there in front of all of us. He didn't, he didn't wait. He didn't, we're all just sitting there real trepidatious and, you know, and doing this, and he just <laughs> cautioned to the wind. Now, thankfully, it was filtered water, so rest easy. Did Jose and his family get saved in that moment because they gave us a cup of cold water, they gave us lemonade? No. But if you were here that night, you remember the rest of the story. A few nights later, we went back to that home. And Jose and his wife and his two children prayed to receive Christ. Friends, when it says here that those who receive the messengers of Jesus will not lose their reward, that's what it's talking about. That should give us hope, that should give us encouragement that Jesus is saying this is going to be a reality. That you're going to have hardship, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have division, you're gonna, there's going to be animosity towards you, there's going to be all kinds of dem- demonic forces coming against you, but somebody's going to receive you. Somebody's going to listen to what you say, and somebody is going to believe. And so that makes it all worth it. That's why I'm sending you to do this. And he, he just gives us these three concrete examples, and, and he, he's, he's actually kind of looking forward into the Christian story, if you will. He, he, he's kind of starting there with the disciples and moving outwards, because he says, whoever receives uh, whoever receives you receives me, so he's talking about himself, and then he says, <clears throat> talking about them, the disciples, and he says, whoever receives a prophet, uh, someone that in the New Testament days would have been someone who, who, who would have been able to speak authoritatively about God, though not in the same way of Scripture, but in a way that, that caused people to, to think, caused their hearts to be pricked, and perhaps even caused them to believe. And then he goes on and says, whoever receives a righteous person, and I believe he, he has us in view there. Why do I think that? Because if you get to the last verse and he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water, he's not talking about children. He's not talking about compassion ministry, as important as that is. That's just not what this text is talking about. He is saying... Any any one of these little ones of mine, anybody who gives them a cup of water because they are my disciple, anyone who receives them, believes their message, trusts in me because of what they say, he will not lose his reward. So Jesus is talking to these men, but, but he's envisioning a future of his little ones, his disciples all throughout the church age, all throughout from the book of Acts to right now. Going out, taking the message, and by God's grace, being received by some. Friends, that is the only way we can stay motivated in evangelism. It is the only way to know that regardless of the rejection, regardless of the division, regardless of the ridicule, somebody sometime is going to believe. You and I must persevere. And you know most often the people who receive and believe are the ones who practice this kind of hospitality. We, you know, if somebody shuns you away from their door, probably not going to get to preach to them much. They invite you in for a meal, give you a cup of lemonade with filtered water, praise God. Perhaps, perhaps, seeds are being sown, and perhaps they will receive the message in the ultimate sense. That is motivation for evangelism, and it's motivation to scare away discouragement. So be encouraged that while Jesus speaks candidly and clearly about the cost, he is saying it is worth it. He is saying that this different gospel than than perhaps is popular and perhaps is easy is actually the true gospel. It's actually the real gospel. That it's costly, but it's worth it. Because someone's eternity hangs in the balance. I ask you to keep in mind uh, the friends from Thailand that I spoke to you about earlier, I want to show you one more picture. This was taken about two months ago. I pulled it from their website. And this is one of the, the indigenous leaders there, Thai leaders there. All of these folks that you see around this table are ex-prisoners. All of them. They were preached to in the prisons. And By the way, the, uh, the government of Thailand gives, gives these people like special privileges. It's quite remarkable. They become friends with one of the members of the royal family, and they perform evangelistic choir concerts for the royal family of Thailand, prisoners. It's just remarkable. in a Buddhist country, it's remarkable what God can do. These are all ex-prisoners. You want to know what they all have in common? Almost exclusively, their families have abandoned them, almost exclusively. I had the pleasure of worshiping in a church that's connected with this ministry called the House of Blessing. The leadership of the church, and the congregation of the church, all ex-prisoners who almost exclusively have no biological family anymore, other than they, a lot of them have married one another, <laughs> so they have little children. It's quite Wonderful. That's a real-life 21st century illustration of what Jesus says. These men and women, because of their commitment to Christ, have no family in the biological sense. But God has given them a new family. So what do I want to encourage you this morning and warn you? is that we are entering into a time where I believe this is going to be common even among us. Cultural Christianity is fading quickly. It is going away fast. And those who are truly going to follow Jesus might find themselves in a similar situation. So the question is, are you ready if that happens to you? And the second question is, are we ready as a church to be the new family of God that he has called us to be? Those are questions that only time will tell. As I pray for us, I want to remind you that as always, Jesus invites us to follow him. But the only way we can start the, the journey of following is to trust him. And so this morning... If you have pondered the cost of following Jesus and you have determined that it is worth it, I would invite you to come pray with one of our pastors. I would invite you to come see us this week. If you have determined in your heart that you are a follower of Jesus, but perhaps you have embraced a watered-down gospel, that you have embraced an easy Christian life, I pray that God would give you the strength to renew your commitment to him give you the strength to count the cost and be willing to pay the price. As always, the altar is open for any other prayer needs that you might have. We would be honored to pray with you. Let me pray now corporately as we close, and then John will come and lead us in our invitation. Father, we are mindful that you are honest with us, that you are truthful when you tell us what it will cost to follow you, but God, help us to see that it is all worth it. That, Father, we can do this, we can follow you because we follow a living, risen Savior. We follow one who is not unsympathetic to us. We follow one who understands our weaknesses and understands our sorrows. Father, I pray for those here who who might be far from you. I pray for those... who who might be mockers. I pray for those who might be enemies of yours. I pray that they would see in this moment that you have made a way to be reconciled to you, that you have made a way through Jesus. And yes, it's costly, Father, but the cost of not following is so much greater. I pray through your Holy Spirit you would speak to the hearts of men and women this morning in only a way that you can. We do want to take time to be thankful. We thank you for this season, the season of Thanksgiving, and then for this season of Advent that we will enter into in just a few days. Help us to not lose our focus on you. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask it in his name.